Um, so when the staff and I get together, sometimes we get a little mischievous, and we like to play tricks on the church. And uh, so halfway through this series, we changed some faces on your bulletin to see if anyone would notice. Um, the original bulletin looked like that. <laughs> And then we, uh, uh, someone, someone I won't name who, did some masterful work to uh, change some of the theologians' faces um, to, the, to the great theologians of our day, right? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I'm just kidding. So we have uh, Jonathan Edwards, who has become Tyler, who looks French. And uh, I don't know if it's because Charles Spurgeon was a bigger guy. That's why I got him. But uh, that's, uh, <laughs> they chose uh, 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 Charles uh, Spurgeon for me. That's a humbling, humbling is that Doc O up in the right? Yeah, we should have, yeah. yeah. And just for anyone who's wondering, that's John Wesley, and uh, uh, that is um, uh, Whitfield, thank you. Uh, good thing Ron's here. Uh, the name was escaping me. So just some great men of history past. But with that little humor aside, let's start our uh, sermon today. This is the last uh, sermon in our series on revival. So if you have your Bibles, grab them, turn them on, head on over to Colossians, and we'll be picking up there in just a few moments. Uh, but we're, as I said, we're finishing our, service, our series on revival, particularly personal revival. In this series, we haven't spent much time looking at the large-scale revivals, and I did that intentionally because those can sometimes become distracting. Uh, These were the revivals where whole churches, cities uh, were transformed, and even geographical revivals that swept across countries. We looked at a couple, but not many, because I wanted our focus to be on personal revival, or sometimes this is called personal renewal, where we are changed in a more dramatic and quick fashion than is typical. And today we will focus on another aspect of revival that falls upon our shoulders as well, in a sense. As you notice through the series, we started where only God can do. Only his work starts revival. But then there are a few things that we can do as a part of these revivals, just like when we talked about training ourselves, when we talked about dwelling in community. And today we are going to be talking about our need, our responsibility to grow theologically. And if you haven't been raised in the church, or maybe you have, you know, the word theology might be new to you. And if you've been raised in the church, maybe it has some negative connotations to it. So we're going to get rid of all of that. We're going to teach you what the word means, and we're going to actually give you the proper understanding because it's not negative at all. And the role that theology plays in revival is what we are going to be focused on. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to be reading Colossians 1, picking up in verse 9. Uh, which says, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God." being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. 
But I want you, as we start, to just kind of remember back when you were in school. Now, if you're still in school, I just want you to remember back to Friday. Um, And remember to a time when there was that kid or kids who wouldn't do the work that they were supposed to do, but rather they would just always try to copy off somebody else's work Uh, in a test. You know they didn't study because they're dropping their pencil and leaning really far and trying to look over on your page. There was tons of kids who did this, and maybe you were that student. I'm not asking for any hands today. Um, But that person who copies another person's work, what is happening is that they're getting the answers right, sure, but they haven't learned. They haven't internalized the logic behind those answers, the reason behind the equation. It hasn't become part of who they are. So they're getting the answers right, and their answers are not wrong, but they're getting, uh, but the problem is they're not learning. They're just regurgitating facts like a parrot. And because they don't learn, they're not truly doing the work that is set before them. And this is how I believe most Christians function theologically and spiritually. I think the vast majority of Christians get the right answers, but they're not putting in the work to think about the questions and allow the answers to transform them. I'm not concerned about you knowing all the facts. I'm concerned about your transformation, amen? They have a cheat sheet, per se, where all the answers are there. They get all the answers from, but they're not doing the hard work of the doctrine. And doctrine just means teaching of the theology, the scripture, working out in their hearts in such a way that it's naturally bearing fruit in their lives. It's easy to simply look over at somebody else and copy the answers. Some of us are so focused on being right and getting the right answers that we avoid, we bypass altogether the hard work of growing theologically. And part of the reason we do this is that we fundamentally at the core don't believe that theology actually has any practical, tangible benefit in our lives. We miss that theology is a form that gives life, that births life. If I have to hear one more time, oh, it's all about relationship and not about theology, if I could slap the first person who said that, I'm just being honest, okay? No, but that is the furthest thing from the truth. Because if I knew nothing about my wife, how would I know how to love her? How would I know how to meet her needs? Not that God has any needs to be met, but if we don't know the parameters of our relationship with God, how are we to worship him and bring glory and honor to him? And that's all theology. But but I want to talk about theology and its connection to revival. And I believe fundamentally that revival is born out of good theology. So a quick, re, uh, quick revival recap to impress this one last time before we move on to the book of 1 Corinthians onto your mind is that there, because there's many great definitions of revival, but the one that we have been using throughout this series is that revival is the extraordinary work of the Holy Spirit producing extraordinary results. That's from Rip, Richard Robert Owens. I always mix his name up, so I might be saying that wrong, but it's from Richard Robert or Richard Owen Roberts, one of the two, but that's what revival is. It's the extraordinary work of God, and it produces extraordinary results, and this is what I want to see in our church and in our lives, and how this connects to theology is very beautiful. 
So revival is an extraordinary work of the Holy Spirit. And what makes it extraordinary is not that it's new, not that it's different, not that it's crazy or something that the Holy Spirit has never done before. Because revival is just simply the ordinary work of the Holy Spirit that he always does every single day in your life and as we gather as a church. Things like convicting, things like new birth, regenerating, sanctifying, teaching, leading, filling, and producing fruit in your life. So the Spirit is doing what he always does in revival, but what makes it extraordinary is that the Holy Spirit is doing it in an intense manner in a short period of time. Now, what's the connection to theology? How does theology play a role in this? And that's a good question. I'm really happy you asked that. Well, God brings about revival in his people through use of certain means. We know this. We've been talking about this for weeks on end now. These are the means of grace, but for a reminder, things like the word of God, your Bible, the ministry of that word, the use of prayer of God's people to pray in accordance with his word, uh, the use of fellowship of the saints and life groups and homes and community, and then coming together to exhort one another in corporate worship where all the means come under one roof, under, uh, uh, under sacrament and under word. God uses all of these to bring about change in your life, to bring about sanctification in your life. And sanctification is just a fancy word for becoming more like Christ. And when it comes to the context and work of revival historically, God uses these means to bring about revival. So in short, God uses his truth, his word, to change his people, as seen in John 17, 17, that says, sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. So it's not just that the Bible as like a collection of words. It's the truth that is contained in those words. It's the teaching that is contained in those words. It's the truth of God revealed to us. These are God's words. The Greek word is theonoustos. It means it's God-breathed. It comes from God. He is the author of the Bible who inspired human authors to write. This is the word of God. The truths are what God uses, that God uses to sanctify us, to change us. And revival is simply just an aspect of that. And we have defined revival and looked at its connection to theology And now we must define theology. So what is theology? Oftentimes we define theology far too narrowly. And I use this definition as well because it's simple, it's easy, but we often define theology as the study of God. And that's okay because it's true, it's understandable, and it's a nice little timbit-sized bite that you can just throw out to somebody. But I think when we define it this way, it lacks the teeth that it needs to have. And, and, and I think we lose out on the experiential side of theology that must be there. I like the experiential definitions of the Puritans. One Puritan, William Ames, says, and he has an amazing definition, he says, theology is simply the doctrine... And doctrine, again, just means teaching of living unto God. 
The doctrine of living unto God. It's the doctrine, the principle of living unto God. But I want to offer you my definition of theology that breaks it down into a couple different components because that's just how my brain works. And this definition of theology will help us as a church to guard against thinking only about theology as an impractical and irrelevant idea to the Christian life but it will also protect us from being that person who just loves theology for the sake of knowledge, but is actually not changed. It's not driving the worship of God and the love of God and the love of neighbor that flows from their love of God. So the word theology comes from two words. It comes from theos, which means God, and it comes from logos, which means words. So if you were to literally translate theology, it would be God words. Words about God. Words that are derived from Scripture. And it's not just any God, but it's our triune God of the Bible. So we must be specific here. So it's God words that are derived from Scripture, or an easier way to think about it is the knowledge of God. But we're not talking about knowledge in an ac- just a purely academic sense. We are talking about knowing God personally. Knowing God relationally through his revelation. So I like to define theology as this. Theology is the knowledge of God experienced and expressed. Because what this definition does is it takes theology and explains it as not just the study of God, but it's actually knowing God. It's actually experiencing the living God. He's not some far-off, aloof God who doesn't have a care about what happens to you. It's about experiencing the living God in the midst of your hurt, your pains, and your joys. It's to know him, not just to know about him. I'm so glad I know my wife and I just don't know about her. Even though that's important, we, we must know things about God, because to actually experience him, we must know things about him. It's all derived from scripture, but it's both experienced and expressed. And to say that it's experienced means to say that it's not just an academic knowledge, but it's a relational knowledge. I have this knowledge of God relationally through faith in Jesus, and theology is never done if it ends with you. Okay, what do I mean by that? I mean that theology is not done at the level of your personal transformation. So what will happen is if you're engaging in true theology, it will transform you from the inside out. But it's not done there. It's not done at your transformation. It must also be expressed. Because at the end of the day, theology is God words. After all, not God vibes. Right? It's not just what you think about God. It's not just how you feel about God. Because my feelings are subjective. But it's the ability to articulate theology, practical theology, theology that is being able to be experienced through you by others. God reveals himself for a purpose, church. He wasn't just pretending. And the reason why he reveals himself is to be known. And then he tasks you and me, the church, with the responsibility of being ambassadors for Jesus by making him known. That's your job. There is no such thing as a secret service Christian. You must live as lights in a dark world that shine. And guess what happens when light shines in the darkness? What comes? Bugs. 
It's hard to live as lights, but we're required to. And I hate bugs. (laughs) But we must experience theology and express it publicly. And this helps us fight against this mythical conflict between head and heart, between theology and practicality, because many people think that theology is just kind of like a necessary evil. Like, oh, okay, I guess I have to do it because I'm a Christian and I don't want to be a heretic. um, So I'm just going to do it. But you know what we really need is just to kind of do away with this academic stuff and just have all these emotions and affections that have nothing to do with doctrine or with theology. But we're dividing two things that are not meant to be divided. I've heard that far too many times in my life. But what's wrong with that is that Scripture presents a drastically different picture. So here's the general outline of thought for our passage today, now that we have our terms defined. And it's pretty simple. It's this. It's doctrine... And remember, doctrine means teaching from the Bible. Doctrine, good doctrine, true doctrine, proper doctrine. Doctrine leads to devotion. Okay, and devotion is that relationship part. And devotion leads to doxology, which is worship. And that's what revival is. So doctrine, we see this in verse 9 and 10. If for a reminder, it says, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. So Paul says he is praying for the church in Colossae, even though they're doing well. He says, I'm not ceasing to pray. It's as he's saying, hey, I'm going to actually double down on my prayer for you, praying that you will increase, that you will be filled with the knowledge of God. He is hitting an aspect that has a greater emphasis on the mind, God's will, the knowledge of God's will. You see, the knowledge of God's will is an aspect of theology that we must understand. A lot of us think of theology as this like esoteric exploration of like who God is. Like, could God create a rock so big that even he couldn't pick it up? Like, that's not theology. And the answer is yes, he can. And then he picks it up, okay? Thank you. Took a little bit, right? But that's not what theology is. Theology is the knowledge of God experienced and expressed. So the knowledge of God involves the knowledge of his person, his character, what he's like, his work, what he does, what he's doing, what he will do. He talks about creation, redemption, providence, his wills, his ways. That's what's required of us to seek out and search and learn and know. We have the ability to know. And here Paul says, I'm praying that you would be filled with the knowledge of God's will, increasing in the knowledge of God's will, meaning they knew some of God's will, but he wanted it to increase. That means you're not done. There's never going to be a point in your life where you can retire from growing and increasing in the knowledge of God. Because you're never going to be perfectly formed in this life. There's always going to be a little bit of deformity. There's always going to be a little bit of weakness. There's always going to be an aspect in which you need to grow. And theologically, this is especially true. 
I think the temptation for a lot of us is to have an attitude like this. I have learned all I can learn. I have been a Christian for so many years. My theology is fully formed. I've read through the Bible X amount of times. So I'm just going to sit back and no longer grow. And I'm here to stand and tell you that's a wasted life. And the truth is that you must be constantly filled with the knowledge of God the knowledge of God's ways, and the knowledge of God's will. Which means there is going to be occasions throughout your life, no matter how deep or how long you go, there you're going to have to make adjustments in your theology. Not because truth has changed, but because maybe you had the wrong understanding or the wrong application. Because even when you get it right, you will always be growing in those areas and how to apply it better to your life. This is an endeavor that is endless. It's not meant to be something that is burdensome. It's actually life-giving to become more like Christ. This was the central cry of the Protestant Reformation over 500 years ago. They said a phrase called sempra reformandra, which means always be reforming. What they meant is every time you open your word, you should be conforming and reforming after the truth of God. As you look in the perfect mirror of Scripture, right? We all know what it feels like to look in the mirror every once in a while. Oh, that's not me. Right? And then you hit the gym or whatever. And it's the same thing with the spiritual mirror. Sometimes it shows things that we don't like. And we have to constantly be working By the power of the Holy Spirit, not your own strength. And it's not so you're more accepted by God because you have already been perfectly accepted by God through Christ. Amen? So we must be constantly be filled with the knowledge of God and his will. And here's the truth. The more true doctrine, the more true uh, that we have is the more that our character will reflect God's will. And it will give way for greater capacity for devotion. True doctrine gives you a greater capacity for devotion, and it also gives you a greater capacity for godliness. Without doctrine, there can be no godliness. There can be no piety. There can be no experiencing God. Now, what, does it, what that doesn't mean is that you have to be some top-tier ivory tower scholar that writes systematic biblical theology books uh, and textbooks, but what it does mean is that to the degree in which the depth that you understand, the person, the work, and the will of God is going to have a direct corresponding influence on how you experience him. And it's also going to have a direct corresponding result on how you handle not just life, but the pains and difficulties and temptations, the afflictions, the disappointments, and the distractions in your life. All of those are going to be influenced by your understanding of God. If you have a small view of God then the storms of life are going to be devastating. But if your view of God is, like I like to call, big God theology, then the storms of life are going to be hard. But the rock of ages will not be moved, amen? Amen. You see this in the pastoral epistles. epistles. We see there's that there's this doctrine that is corresponding to godliness, but we talked about this two weeks ago, that there's also a doctrine that doesn't correspond to godliness. There are people who teach things that lead you away from God as well, and we must be aware of the phonies. There are people, when they abandon good doctrine, they begin to drift in licentiousness, and they like to pull others with them. 
And Paul prays that these Christians would not be drifting into licentiousness, but would be increasing in their knowledge of God. It is an emphasis on the mind, but not with the exclusion of the heart. Because look at what he says. He says, And from the day that we heard, we didn't cease to stop praying for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of God in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. That's the aspect of devotion. Because if devotion has to do with the truth of God being uh, uh, convinced in your mind as a distillation of what is in God's word, then devotion is the truth taking root in your heart. Doctrine's up here, and then devotion is what takes root in your heart. In all spiritual wisdom and understanding, or in other words, for doctrine to be real, it has to be more than just superficial knowledge. It has to be more than just superficial acquaintance with theology. It's not enough to get it right by copying off somebody else's work. It has to be internalized. It's easy just to learn facts. It's easy to articulate those facts. Anyone can do that. I know so many people who know doctrine inside out who can talk about it in exciting ways, but their actions, their lives, their attitudes, their devotion... It's all a mess, and they're far from God. And all they have are facts, and not the transformation that is stemming from an experience with the God behind those facts. Just go back to our working definition on theology that we have for this sermon. We see that theology is experienced first, and then expressed. And the expression is that devotion part. It's the part where people can tangibly feel by the way you live, they can feel your love for God that is rooted in the understanding of his truth. Rather, many of us fear theology, many of us fear doctrine because all we have is this one or two experiences with the guy or girl that every church seems to have who knows so much about the Bible, but they're the cruelest people you have ever met. They are mean, they're hurtful, and they're the furthest thing from being like Christ. Many people I meet with as I walk on those streets and tell them about Jesus, they have so much hurt not from God, but from people who are claiming to represent God. May that not be us, church. So it's doctrine conceived in the mind as a distillation of the truth of God's word, and then it takes root in your heart through devotion, and that's what God wants. Because here's the fundamental truth. Every Christian is a theologian. You're a theologian. You might not be a capital T theologian, But if you're talking about God, you're reading his word, you're expressing it to others, you are a theologian. Some are good, some are bad theologians. But there are a few doctrines that come clear to you, even before you're saved, that actually lead you to believing in God. This doesn't mean that you understand these uh, entirely, but they become true to you and have caused your life to be surrendered to Christ. For example, the first doctrine that comes into focus for you as you become a believer Um, is the doctrine of sin. You recognize that you're a sinner, that you have done evil in your life. Even though you're looking around at others, you're like, well, I'm not a drug addict. I'm not this. I'm not that. I'm better than those people. No, you move past comparing yourself because that's a horrible thing to do. And you know that internally that you're a desperate, wicked sinner who deserves to be crushed by the wrath of God, that you deserve hell, that you deserve damnation. But it doesn't stay there. 
What happens next is you look to God and the doctrine of God's love comes into focus. And what you learn is that God loves sinners. Why doesn't the church love sinners? Huh? Because we're full of it. Okay, I thought you were saying we're full of something else. (laughs) Right? We don't represent our Savior too well all the time. God loves sinners. He loves the ungodly so much that he sent Jesus Christ, the perfect lamb, fully God and fully man, to live the life we could never live, to die the death that we should have died, and to rise again with salvation in his arms. We deserved to be crushed by God's righteous anger, but instead Jesus steps in and is crushed on our behalf. And what we receive from Jesus is his forgiveness, which is the third doctrine that comes into focus. We know that we're forgiven, past, present, and future, in the, in the name of Jesus Christ. We know that we have insurance before the face of God. And if you are just learning these things, today's the day that you bow your knee to Christ. Today's the day. This is all truth. This is all true. It's theology embraced, not just intellectually, but it's taking root in our hearts. A moment a person believes they are converted and faith and repentance begin to work themselves out in their lives. Now, we can, now that we've looked at theology applied, we, uh, uh, we can do one really bad thing to make this a little more clear that I'm bad at, and that's math. But I'm really good at biblical math. So let's look at these principles uh, in, the, in the form of subtraction, and that's head... I don't have a slide for these, sorry. Head minus heart equals hypocrisy. That's basic math. Head minus heart equals hypocrisy. You can get all the right doctrine. You can articulate uh, properly. You can sign our confession of faith. You can say the right things. You can act as an orthodox Christian. If it's all disconnected from the heart, we're hypocrites. We're pretenders. Or as Paul says to the Corinthians, we're an annoying gong, just clashing. You know, when the kids run up here and smash the cymbals? That's what you are like when you're disconnecting your head from your heart. We are the kid in the class who has not learned. We don't know the truth. We're just a parrot who has been trained to say the right stuff and behave the right way. Or as Jesus said, we're just washing the outside of the cup, but the inside is filthy. It's rotten. It's dead. But head plus heart, that equals holiness. That equals piety. That equals transformation. Because the heart is very much the power source of your life. Why people choose the things they do and not other things, what motivates us, what animates us, it's our heart. Now, the heart is a powerful thing, but it needs to be guided. Your heart needs to be directed. In theology, the truth of God's word is what directs your hearts and bridles your emotions. In Proverbs, we are told to keep our heart with all vigilance because from it flows springs of life. Your heart is powerful. It empowers your life. And if you're not able to guard it, if you're not able to steer it, you're going to crash. And it's theology, the truth of God's word, that allows us to guard, to keep, and to guide and direct our hearts. 
as we see in Matthew twenty two thirty seven, we see Jesus getting asked, we all know this one, the greatest commandment. And, and what's his answer? He gives two parts to his answer. I'm only going to give you the first part. He says, it's to love the Lord your God. To love the Lord your God. It's not just intellectual. It takes heart. There's affection. There's an internal aspect to it. That is what God wants, is that we are loving him with all of our heart, with all of our soul, and with all of our mind. It's coming together of our intellect and our emotions, our affection and our understanding. It's doctrine and devotion together. This is what God wants. As Psalm 40, uh, 6 to 10 says, just listen to me read this. It says, in sacrifice and offering you have not delighted. That's interesting. But you have given me an open ear. Burnt offerings and sin offerings you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I have come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. He's expressing. Behold, I have not restrained my lips as you know, O Lord. I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. He's not a secret service Christian. I have spoken your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. What he's saying is, God, I've experienced you. And now I'm expressing you. Now I'm explaining you to others. He is engaged in true heartfelt theology derived from the truth of God's word. God wants our hearts and God wants our minds. It takes both. Doctrine leads to devotion, which leads to doxology. So what is doxology? We sing the doxology after every service. And doxology, it just means songs of praise to God. It comes from two words, the word doxa, which means glory, and the word, again, logos, which means words. So again, another literal translation would be glory words. So we have God words and glory words. Words that bring glory to God. But a doxological life is a life that brings glory, a life that glorifies God from every avenue. We see this in verse 10 of our main scripture. Paul's saying, I'm praying that you increase in the will of God. Why? So that you walk in a manner that is worthy of the Lord. He's praying for them to have good theology that is embraced from the heart, which then is producing a life that looks like the character of Christ. It looks like a life that honors God. A life of glory is not a life of power. It's not a life of personal exaltation or fame. It's, that's not what a life of glory is. A life of glory is not a life of ease and pleasantries. It's a life that's embracing our chief end as humans. And the Westminster Shorter Catechism puts it this way. It says, what is the chief end of man? Where's my good catechized people? To know God and enjoy him forever. To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That's what a doxological life seeks and finds God's glory in tangible ways today. We glorify God by loving him, which is our heart, and doing his commands, which is our hands. It is a life of transformed obedience. Romans 12, 2 says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. To be transformed means what? 
It means to go through a metamorphosis. It means to be changed. It means to be made different, to be made into what you're supposed to be, what God has designed you to be, to be transformed. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And your mind is transformed by the truth of God through true doctrines that the Bible holds. The doxological life is theology applied and theology lived out. This is something God has promised to work out in us long ago in the Old Covenant as well. He promised that there will be a day when he was going to come and get up in our business. He was going to get up in our face. He was going to change us. And that we are going to experience a transformation that was eternal, that was not temporal or partial, but would be progressive and continual and lead to glory. We see this in Ezekiel 36, 26 to 27. What does he say there? He says, I'm going to give you a new heart. I'm going to give you a new spirit. It's going to be put within you. He's going to take our heart of stone. And what is he going to give us? A heart of flesh. And I'm going to cause you to walk by my statutes. That's what the doxological life is. A life conformed to the will of God. God willingly because we begin to capture the heart of God from an understanding and embrace of the person work of God through theology. We don't keep God's commands to be accepted. We keep God's commands because we are accepted. Because Jesus kept them for you perfectly. You could never do it. I want to be revived, church. And I want you to be revived. A lot of us are tired. We're bored with God. We're apathetic. Maybe we're drifting. We have our eyes placed in the wrong place. We're treating our spouses horribly behind closed doors. We're treating each other not with love but hate. And we need to be revived. We need the winds of renewal to blow through our church. I'm not talking about some massive revival that draws crowds. I'm talking about personal revival that causes me and you to look and love like Christ. To long to be in his presence. To lovingly treat us and those around you and point them to Jesus. I long for a life that brings glory and honor and praise to our king through our thoughts, through our actions, and through our deeds. We all need to be revived in one sense. And not in the sense like we need to go to the doctor or the dentist to get a checkup, but rather we need revival because we're languishing. I'm slow at times. I'm weak at times. I'm feeble at times. And I know you are as well. And this doesn't mean that we just kick back and wait. That's what we've seen throughout this whole study, that when revival comes to strengthen us, to break us over our sin, and to thrill us about our salvation. This is the word of God, and he does it in conjunction with our faith with our repentance, with our putting off the old and putting on the new, with our, our, our pursuing of a disciplined lives of godliness, and as we grow in good theology. You see, revival is born out of good theology. So look at your life and consider, is your doctrine, is your theology, is your teaching giving way to devotion? Is your devotion giving way to doxology? which is worship. Because if it's not, there's something wrong. Doctrine means you have to take the word of God, read it, seek it, understand it, get as much help as you can, read good books, ask your leaders, go to friends who are sitting next to you and help one another 
It's the priesthood of all believers. I'm just the lead beggar pointing you where the bread is. I'm no more important than you. The doctrine of the word is what can lead to devotion, which means you're applying it to your heart. You are seeking to experience its power internally. And doxology means you put in the time to work it out and apply it practically. So church, maybe God will revive us. I don't know if he will. But I know for a fact that God will sanctify us, which is a part of revival. Because revival is just punctuated sanctification. So Lord, as we close this series off, as our first verse says, will you not revive us again? Why? So we can rejoice in him. Amen? Let's close as the worship team comes. Or let's pray, sorry. Father, we thank you, Lord, that there are aspects of revival that we can have our hands in, that we can prepare ourselves for. But God, at the end of the day, we know that these special works from you, Lord, are from you. They're your doing. We can't jump up and down and hold our breath long enough and demand you to move. But Father, you do this out of your own pleasure and goodness. And Father, you know what we need best. And Father, sometimes that is renewal and revival. But Father, my prayer for this church is that you would give us our good best, our, our, our good Lord, which is you. And however we get there, oh God, may it be. Father, revive this church. Revive me, O oh Lord. Give all of us a deeper hunger for your word. Give us all a deeper love for you and for others sitting next to us and for our community. Father, I thank you, Lord, for the faith of our elders to step out this past weekend to put on this movie, O oh God. Lord, I thank you that we were able to become one step closer to a show-and-tell church than just a come-and-see church. That we would go and embrace our community that we would go, in lack of better words, get our hands dirty with real people and stop living in a Christian bubble. But Father, that we would be amongst your people whom you've died for. And that you would use every single one of us here, O oh Lord, to extend your love to another person. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.